You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 217, Spain Enters the War. In April 1779, France and Spain signed the Treaty of Aranjuez, which effectively drew Spain into the war with Britain. For the past couple of centuries, Spain had been France's traditional ally and Britain's traditional enemy. While Spain did not share France's enthusiasm for American liberty, it did harbor grudges against Britain and welcomed an opportunity to settle some of them by entering the war. In the late 1700s, Spain was near the height of its worldwide empire. Spain, of course, had been the first European power to colonize the Americas following Christopher Columbus's revelation that an entire Western Hemisphere existed and was available to be conquered. After Columbus returned from his first voyage, Spain claimed sovereignty over the entire Western Hemisphere. It did so even though Columbus only had limited information about a few islands in the Caribbean. About a year after Columbus's return, Spain and Portugal signed the Treaty of Tordesillas, which essentially recognized Spain's claims to all lands west of a vertical line drawn through the Atlantic Ocean. The treaty was designed to recognize Portugal's claims to some islands in the Atlantic while ceding to Spain all the unknown lands further west. In fact, unknown to both parties at the time, the line ceded what is today the eastern part of Brazil to the Portuguese, which is why Brazil became a Portuguese colony. In truth, though, when the vast size of North and South America came to be understood, there was no way Spain would be able to occupy or defend its vast claims to the hemisphere. Britain, France, the Netherlands, and other European powers were not parties to the treaty and did not recognize Spanish claims to the entire Western Hemisphere. But Spain was the first to establish a colonial empire, For more than a century, Spain conquered most of South and Central America, as well as many Caribbean islands. It was not until the early 17th century that other European powers seriously began to consider American colonies of their own. By that time, Spain had enslaved much of the native population and was hauling gold and silver by the shipload back to Spain. The age of conquest and colonization could really be an entire podcast by itself. Suffice it to say that Britain, France, the Netherlands, and a few other European powers got into the game late and had to settle for leftovers, mostly in North America, where Spain had not really established a presence yet. Part of Spain's problem during this era was that it was not really a well-organized nation-state. Rather, it was still a collection of different kingdoms. A modern army and navy were not really part of its top priorities. 
King Carlos III was beginning to change all of that, but it would take time. Spain, at this time, was considered an enlightened absolute monarchy. That meant that the country was open to some social and economic reforms, such as encouraging scientific learning and allowing the ownership of private property, but ceding political power was out of the question. The king controlled the government. Ideas about shared sovereignty, inalienable rights, or rule by the consent of the governed were just not welcome in Spain. When Great Britain saw the tons of gold and silver that Spanish mines in America were producing, it knew it had to establish its own colonies. Britain and France both invested in powerful navies in order to challenge Spanish claims in America. For the most part, Spain was having enough trouble controlling all the colonies it had already established by that time, and it basically tolerated the colonization of North America by the other European powers. Now, there were, of course, disputes that sometimes resulted in war. For most of the 17th and 18th centuries, European powers tried to take colonies from each other. Since Spain had originally claimed everything, it had nowhere to go but down. British naval power created problems for the Spanish Empire. Over time, it not only impacted their colonies in America, but elsewhere as well. At the end of the War of Spanish Succession in 1714, Spain not only had to cede the Mediterranean island of Menorca to the British, but also Gibraltar, which was on the Spanish mainland. Gibraltar was a key piece of land at the very southern tip of Spain, which controlled entry and exit from the Mediterranean Ocean. Spain also gave Florida to Britain after the Seven Years' War in exchange for getting back Cuba, which Britain had captured during the war. Spain was eager to reclaim some of its lost territories from Britain, particularly Gibraltar. But, as it had found over the years, wars were very costly and could result in losing more territory than it won. Spain had approved effective in conquering natives in the Americas, but things tended to not go well when they tussled with other European navies. Spain had almost gone to war with Britain over the Falkland Islands in 1770, but then conceded British control of the islands rather than risk another costly war at that time. As France moved toward war with Britain, it tried to drag along its traditional Spanish ally. Britain was relatively isolated, and none of its traditional European allies were joining in the fight. And with Britain's resources sapped in putting down the rebellion in North America, this was a perfect time for France and Spain to gang up and take back some territory. Spain, however, was not as enthusiastic as France. In 1776 and 1777, Spain was fighting a war with Portugal, primarily over the border in South America between the Portuguese colony of Brazil and the rest of Spanish-controlled South America. The main outcome of that war was to confirm that Uruguay would be under Spanish authority. With Britain in its weakened position at this point, Spain hoped that the British would recognize that fact and would just agree to return Gibraltar, Menorca, and the Floridas to Spain and also give up its illegal colonies in Central America. Spain had provided some of the funds early in the war to provide covert military aid to America via the Rodriguez Hortelez and Company, run by Silas Dean and Pierre Beaumarchais. 
Spain had also given cover to a few American privateers early in the war. But even after France went to war in early 1778, Spain did not want to go to war until it gave Britain a chance to buy them off by ceding back the territories that they wanted. It probably would have been happy just to regain Gibraltar. If Britain had ceded Gibraltar back to Spain, then Spain almost certainly would have stayed out of the war. Spain attempted these diplomatic negotiations as the war progressed. By 1779, it was clear that Britain was in real trouble and that it still had no interest in ceding back territory to Spain. It rejected the Spanish overtures over Gibraltar. And as I said, France and Spain were traditional allies, two Catholic countries ruled by Bourbon kings whose family had closely intermarried. French foreign minister, the Comte de Virgen, had been working with Spanish foreign minister José Monino y Redondo, Conde de Floriblanca, to agree to terms that would entice Spain into joining the war. King Carlos III saw a real danger in supporting an American rebellion against a European king. All of Spanish America could use that precedent to overthrow Spanish rule throughout the Americas. Revolution is always a dangerous game for monarchs to play. Beyond the concern of Spanish revolutions, Spain also feared that an independent America might soon threaten its Louisiana territory. Spain had acquired Louisiana from France after the Seven Years' War. Unrestricted Americans pushing westward might threaten those claims and lead to future wars. As far as Spain was concerned, that cautioned against American independence. Like France, Spain was happy with an ongoing rebellion that would sap British resources and occupy its rival. But it really wasn't looking forward to dealing with either party as the winner after the war concluded. For a time, Spain held out the offer to Britain to mediate an end to the war, the price, of course, being Gibraltar. Spain really had no leverage over the American colonies. Its main value to Britain probably would have been to take France back out of the war. But since there was not much realistic chance of that either, Britain did not accept Spanish offers of mediation. With the lack of British interest, Spain could either remain neutral or join the war with France. As I said, Spain was in no hurry to join the war, while France really wanted the extra support in its war with Britain. The British Navy was larger than the French Navy, but it was not larger than Spain and France combined. This meant that a Spanish alliance would help protect French island colonies and put British island colonies at risk. In short, France was desperate to bring Spain into the war in order to tip the balance of power. As a result, France had to agree to Spanish demands in order to entice it into joining the war. The big issue for Spain was Gibraltar. France had to agree that it would continue the war until they had recovered Gibraltar for Spain. Since the Franco-American Treaty committed the U.S. to continue fighting until France concluded its peace, this treaty between France and Spain effectively committed the U.S. to the recovery of Gibraltar as well. Spain also hoped to recover Menorca and the Floridas. Spain had also pushed for some sort of joint French-Spanish control of the North American colonies once Britain ceded authority. 
Like France, Spain did not believe that the Americans could govern themselves and that they would eventually have to become part of a protectorate. France, however, realized that the Americans were not going to agree to this. While the Americans might someday appreciate the need for some royal authority to govern them, it was not possible to make such a proposal at this time. Therefore, the idea of a joint protectorate did not make its way into the treaty. The treaty made clear that Spain did not recognize American independence. This was a treaty with France only, to cooperate in the recovery of colonies. If the American rebellion aided in that process, great. But Spain was not committed to the establishment of an independent United States. Spanish forces would not assist in the ongoing struggle of the newly self-proclaimed United States. Rather, Spanish efforts in America would focus on shoring up control of Louisiana and reclaiming East and West Florida. France, which had already been at war with Britain for over a year, asked for relatively little in the treaty. Mostly, it wanted support for its claim of a return of fishing rights from Britain off the coast of Newfoundland. With the terms of the treaty resolved, France and Spain signed the treaty on April 12, 1779. The terms of the treaty were not made public. Spain declared war on Britain in June. Word reached America about Spain's entry into the war, and of course that news was met with great celebration. Regardless of Spain's motives or interests, forcing Britain to spread its military resources even more thinly to deal with another world enemy would only benefit the American cause. The news, however, was slow to arrive. Even months after Spain's declaration of war, the Americans were still unsure of Spain's status. By late August 1779, Washington was only writing that he had reason to believe that Spain had entered the war, but could not say for certain, and even if they did, what the terms of entering the war were. It was only in October that Washington and Congress received definitive word that Spain had entered the war. Because Spain did not recognize the United States as an independent nation, it did not send an ambassador. However, Spain did send an observer to Congress sometime earlier. Don Juan de Morales came from a relatively well-off family, but not aristocracy. His father was a Spanish officer and his mother was French. He was born in Spain, but moved to Havana, Cuba as a young man. There, he married the daughter of a successful Havana merchant and ran his own trading company. In search of markets, he began trading with the British colonies in North America, he spoke English, and he had a number of contacts in St. Augustine, Charleston, and Philadelphia. Of course, in the pre-war era, most trade between Spanish and British colonies were illegal, but neither government was enforcing those rules very much, and trade flourished. Morales established himself as a wealthy Havana merchant. When the revolution began, Spain remained officially neutral, but often did what it could to encourage the rebellion against British authorities. When American privateers began arriving in Havana with British prize vessels, Morales made money buying those prizes and then reflagging them and selling the ships and cargo. By 1777, Spanish officials in Madrid sent word to the Governor-General of Cuba to send agents to various British colonies. 
Morales's brother was sent to Florida to stir up the natives against British rule. Another agent went to Jamaica, and Morales took the assignment to go to Philadelphia and maintain relations with the Continental Congress. Getting to Philadelphia in 1777 from Cuba was not easy. British naval traffic in the area was focused on keeping military supplies from the West Indies from reaching the rebels in North America. Morales left aboard a Spanish ship purportedly bound for Cadiz, Spain. The captain of the ship had orders to put into Charleston, South Carolina, purportedly to make emergency repairs. Morales left the ship in Charleston in January of 1778. While in Charleston, Morales wrote to Spanish officials hoping to get some sort of commission for his new role. He didn't know it, but about this same time, officials in Spain had appointed him as a commissioner. Since Spain did not have formal relations with the U.S., his role was more of an observer. There is some debate, both then and now, about his official status as a representative of the Spanish government. However, it was clear that he was effectively Spain's representative to the Continental Congress. Morales took his time getting to Philadelphia. After arriving in Charleston in January, he met with Governor Edward Rutledge, and they discussed plans to invade East Florida. He also purchased and outfitted a ship that would run trade between Charleston and Havana. Over the next few months, Morales moved north, slowly, meeting with Governor of North Carolina Abner Nash and Virginia Governor Patrick Henry. The topic of conversations was usually Spain's interest in cooperating in the recovery of the Floridas. Now, this was the same winter that the British occupied Philadelphia, Washington was in Valley Forge, and Congress was meeting in the small town of York, Pennsylvania. Morales did not seem in any hurry to get there. However, shortly after the British evacuated Philadelphia in the spring of 1778 and Congress returned to the city, Morales made his way to the American capital and began making contacts. It was about this time that word of France's entry into the war had arrived in America. Everyone expected Spain to follow soon, but Morales could not give any assurances. Even so, Congress gave him the respect as a representative of a potential ally. Morales also used this time to forge a partnership with Pennsylvania merchant and delegate Robert Morris. The men acquired a small fleet of ships to begin trade between Philadelphia and Havana. When Washington returned to Philadelphia for an extended visit in late 1778 and early 79, he and Morales had a chance to get to know one another and seemed to strike up a friendship of sorts. So Morales was mixing business and politics and his personal interests as well as those of Spain all together in one big profitable mess. Morales's planned trade and cooperation with Robert Morris would have assisted the American cause. It would have also been extremely profitable to both men. It was also extremely risky. Running merchant ships past the British blockade of North America created a high risk of loss. Morales was putting his personal fortune at risk, in part to win the goodwill of the American leadership, but also to make a lot of money. The men hoped that the smuggling venture would make them both a lot of money, but would also bring much-needed military supplies from Havana. 
As part of his political efforts, Morales tried to establish an understanding with Congress. His pitch was pretty simple. Spain would enter the war, but would want assurance that the U.S. would support Spain's claims to East and West Florida. Of course, Morales had no real authority to commit Spain to war, nor to make any agreements related to territories. Congress at this time was not prepared to cast off the Floridas based on some general promise that Spain might someday enter the war. At the same time that Morales was encouraging the Americans to concede Florida, he was also writing to leaders in Spain and Cuba to establish the formal alliance. His letters home made clear that the Americans had capable leaders and could be reliable allies. He strongly encouraged Spanish officials to enter the war and form an alliance with the Americans. In May 1779, Morales, along with French minister Girard, visited the Continental Army in northern New Jersey. They attended parades and feasts in their honor and met extensively with General Washington. By this time, France and Spain had already signed the treaty committing Spain to the war with Britain, but it was still a secret. Morales himself did not know the state of negotiations and could only say that he was hopeful of Spain's entry into the war sometime soon. By August, word had arrived that Britain and Spain had both recalled their ambassadors and that Spain had deployed a fleet. There were also unofficial reports that King George had made an announcement to Parliament of hostilities with Spain. In September, the Continental Congress finally took up the Spanish concern over the Floridas. In a divisive vote, Congress agreed to support Spanish claims over the Floridas, provided the Americans retained free travel up and down the Mississippi River. Many members of Congress were reluctant to cede their southern border to Spain. John Jay, who would soon be appointed ambassador to Spain, voted against it. It's likely due to the lobbying of Morales, who convinced Washington to support the resolution that it passed Congress at all. By this time, British and Spanish fighting had already broken out between the British in West Florida and the Spanish in New Orleans. A series of battles and skirmishes along the Gulf Coast would tie up British forces and, as Congress hoped, force the British to focus their attention elsewhere. And, of course, we'll get to that fighting in another episode. But before the end of 1779, word did arrive confirming that Spain was, in fact, at war with Britain. The result was celebration that the American position was growing stronger and that Britain's difficulties were only growing. And next week, the Americans begin serious efforts against the Iroquois with their attack at Onondaga Creek. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. 
Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Lee Seum in the Robert Morris Circle. I'm also grateful to Paul Kallenberger for another generous gift via PayPal. If you would like to be a Patreon of this podcast, go to patreon.com slash amrevpodcast. You can also give a one-time benefit at paypal.me slash amrevpodcast. I really appreciate everyone who has helped to cover my costs in running this podcast. Now, this week, Spain joins the war indirectly through a treaty with France. There has been a push by some to credit Spain with a key role in the founding of the United States similar to that of France. Now, there is no doubt that Spain's entry into the war benefited the American cause by further distracting the British. But unlike France, Spain did not send officers to serve in the Continental Army. It did not fight side by side with the Continental soldiers. It did not even recognize American independence until 1783, the same year as Britain. Spanish officials were greatly concerned that American independence would inspire Spanish colonies in America to seek their own independence, a fear that proved all too true in the 19th century as the Spanish Empire in America collapsed in a series of independence revolutions. If you want to read more about Spain's role in the revolution, this week's book recommendation is Spain and the American Revolution, New Approaches and Perspectives, by Gabriel Paquette and Gonzalo M. Quintero Saviera. The book is a series of papers originally presented at the Sons of the American Revolution Conference in 2018. The book itself was published in 2020. It includes over a dozen essays by different experts on various aspects of Spanish involvement during the Revolutionary War era. The works are mostly academic and can be a bit dry, but it does cover the many different aspects of Spain's involvement. So, if this subject interests you, check out Spain and the American Revolution. If you want to read more about Spanish 18th century colonialism in America, this week's online recommendation is a public domain book called Spain's Declining Power in South America, 1730-1806 by Bernard Moses. The book was first published in 1919, only two decades after the Spanish-American War, it's an academic look at the Spanish colonial policies in the era before the revolutions against Spain in South America took hold. You can find this as an ebook at archive.org or just use the direct link on my website, which you can find at www.amrevpodcast.com.
This week's question comes from Curtis Johnson. He asks, How close was Washington to adopting, or did he even seriously consider, Franklin's idea to assign bows as the primary weapon for the Continental Army instead of firearms? The idea is interesting. Certainly issuing bows addresses firearm-related supply issues. The range, accuracy, and lethality are similar, if not favorable, to the bow, and the rate of fire is much greater. The bow also offered the option of indirect fire. The downside would be retraining men who'd grown up using firearms. Well, Curtis, it is true that Franklin wrote a letter in early 1776 to General Charles Lee suggesting that soldiers use bows and arrows. At the time, the Continental Army had almost no gunpowder and lacked the ability to make very much of it. Some of the Continental soldiers around Boston had been given pikes to use as weapons during the Siege of Boston. Franklin gave six reasons for the use of bows and arrows. One, because a man may shoot as truly with a bow as with a common musket. Two, he can discharge four arrows in the time of charging and discharging one bullet. Three, his object is not taken from his view by the smoke of his own side. Four, a flight of arrows seen coming upon them terrifies and disturbs the enemy's attention to his business. Five, an arrow striking in any part of a man puts him hors de combat till tis distracted. Six, bows and arrows are more easily provided everywhere than muskets and ammunition. Franklin, of course, loved out-of-the-box thinking and regularly proposed all sorts of offbeat ideas. He was not, however, a man who had any practical military experience. To someone with little practical experience on an 18th century battlefield like Franklin, or probably you or me, a bow seems superior in many ways. Muskets were generally considered useful only at less than 100 yards, and really more like 40. Longbows had a range of over 350 yards. Muskets could also usually only get a rate of fire of maybe three or four shots per minute, and a good archer could release 12 arrows per minute. And yet we know that bows disappeared from combat after the introduction of muskets, even though firelocks were far inferior to the flintlocks that were being used by the time of the American Revolution. Indian tribes that adopted the musket early quickly overcame their rivals who were using bow and arrows. Experience in the field proved that muskets were superior weapons. People who have looked at battles where muskets faced off against bows did not appear to find any real battle advantage for the archers, and usually quite the reverse. European military leaders, through experience, found that muskets were more effective on the battlefield despite their limitations. Musket balls could penetrate shields and armor. They were more devastating in stopping charges. They simply proved more effective in battle, which is why bows and arrows disappeared from European battlefields centuries earlier. Even so, for an army that did not have muskets and was using pikes, why was Franklin's bow and arrow suggestion just dismissed? General Washington had ordered the manufacture and deployment of pikes and spears shortly after his arrival in Boston, but not so for bows and arrows. The reality is that making a good bow and arrow is an advanced skill 
that simply did not exist in the colonies. Using a bow and arrow also requires years of training and development of certain muscles, something that the Continentals did not have time for once the war began. So, without the time, training, and expertise to use bows and arrows, they simply were not a practical solution. So, despite Franklin's letter, Continental officers never seriously considered developing a force of archers to use in the Revolution. If you have a question for me, please email me at mtroy.history at gmail.com or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or other social media. I will be happy to answer your American Revolution-related questions. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>